want to say thank you to the epic worship team they lead our college and young adult service at nine o'clock on Sunday nights if you have a college student and uh, they do not have a church home I know they would love to see them as part of that service not just college students but young adults as well and so uh, anyway we just want to thank them and Jonathan's absence today for leading us in worship let me ask you to pray for Jonathan and his family and Kevin Seeger and his family both of them are on vacation this week and let me ask you to do them a favor unless you just absolutely have a 911 emergency for them which you won't have probably because there's still others around here to help you with your needs but please let these guys enjoy their family vacation this week with their loved ones they work hard and serve you well and serve the Lord and so find one of the other staff members this week and uh, send your questions or whatever our way instead of their way I know they would deeply appreciate that let me ask you to find your place in your copy of God's Word. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. And as you find your place in your copy of the Scripture in Isaiah 6, I do want to give a couple of other housekeeping announcements. We want to pray for Joe Teeter and her family. Her brother uh, passed away yesterday morning, so pray for Joe and, and her family. Uh, also, Jim Inslee, many of you know, he fell at Taylor Glen uh, about a week ago or maybe a little more than a week ago and fractured his hip and hit his head, ended up with a, a brain bleed. And uh, they are intending sometime today, maybe even right now, to pull him off of the ventilator and life support. And they don't think, the doctors are not anticipating that he will uh, last that long. So uh, pray for Jim Inslee, of course his son, uh, the chairman of our deacons, Curtis Inslee, and Curtis's wife, Garrett Inslee, who's one of our church secretaries, our administrative assistant. Pray for this family, if you would please. You know, lately we have been in a doctrinal series entitled, Celebrating Our Foundations looking at the basic doctrines of our faith and we're about halfway through we've covered the doctrine of scripture and the doctrine of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ the doctrine of the Holy Spirit we still have the doctrine of man and of sin to cover the doctrine of the church and last things so again we're about about halfway through and I've decided with so many people out sick and so many people on vacations, we're going to push the pause button on that right now because as we start talking about salvation and the doctrine of the church and our service and so forth, so many important things to cover, I don't want our folks to miss it. So we'll pick that back up probably along about the time school resumes. And uh, this morning I want to... I talked to you out of Isaiah chapter 6 and then next week of course is a July 4th service and then the two Sundays after that you may recall when COVID hit we were in a series on the Ten Commandments and we got eight of the ten done 
So you know what we've still got dangling out there? Two of them. So we're going to drop back and pick those up and finish that out. And then uh, probably soon thereafter we'll resume on the second part. But you know, as I was thinking this week about the doctrinal series, and as I was studying this passage in Isaiah 6 and just uh, reflecting on it, there's so many things in this chapter here that overlap what we're doing in the doctrinal series. I mean, when you look at Isaiah chapter 6, what do you find? You find the need for a proper view of God. You find the need for a proper view of self and sin, of cleansing and salvation, of ministry that results from that. And then God even gives Isaiah somewhat of a glimpse into his future. And so Isaiah 6 covers revelation, God, man, sin, salvation, missional living, and the future to a small degree. And so it's amazing the overlaps we find in this one passage to so many of the categories we cover in doctrinal studies. We're not going to look at this passage necessarily from that vantage point, but I do want you to understand the overlap. So let's read the chapter, we'll pray, we'll get started. This morning I want to talk to you on the subject matter, becoming God-centered in your life. So stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and I'll be reading this morning from the New Living Translation. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says, It was the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. And yet I've seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Yes, go and say to this people, Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. Then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? And he replied, until their towns are empty, Their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland. 
until the Lord has sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a terebinth or an oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. Father, this is your word. The scripture says all flesh is as grass and as the flower of the field. And it fades away. But your word stands forever. God, we thank you for your word. Because through your word, we learn of you. Of your activity on earth, among men and nations. Of your plan to save and to sanctify. And to call home one day. It's through your word that we learn of the Christian life. Lord, speak to us through your word today. Lord, we know that even as you told Isaiah here, while your word on the one hand can soften hearts and bring conviction, on the other hand, It can harden hearts. God, may our hearts today be softened. And may we say, here am I, Lord. Send me. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Dr. Larry Crabb, who went to be with the Lord this year, recalls an eventful moment in his life growing up that was a life-shaping moment for him. As you know, he was a Christian professor at a university. He was a Christian psychologist, a prolific writer. And in one of his stories, he carries us back to a time when he was going into the fifth grade. And he said that year they had a new teacher by the name of Mr. Erb. Mr. Erb was fresh out of school himself and was determined to be the best fifth grade teacher that school had ever seen. And indeed he was a wonderful teacher. And there was one day when he was dismissing the fifth grade class to their afternoon recess that he asked Larry to stay behind. Now Larry thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. What have I done wrong? And Mr. Herb said, Larry, I've noticed something about you. You love literature, you love language, you love words. And I think there's a lot of potential in you to possibly be a great writer one day. Larry, I want to challenge you to look up a new word in the dictionary every day, a word that you do not know, define it, write a sentence with that word in it, And then I want you to do a little creative writing assignment with that word. It doesn't have to be long, maybe a paragraph, maybe a page, whatever. Larry said he he ran towards that assignment. It tickled him to death. He loved doing it. 
and it ignited a fire in him for writing and for literature that never went away his entire lifetime. It was a life-defining moment for Dr. Crabb that he would often look back to. Now folks, as we look at Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, we see that for the prophet Isaiah, this was a life-defining moment for him. Isaiah would never again be the same after this. Now needless to say, I think as a nation, as a culture, and as the church, the days in which we are living today call for a hard reboot. We've got to get over ourselves and our agendas. You know, the church could speak powerfully to this age that we're in, but unfortunately, I'm not convinced that today's church across the nation and the world is really up for it. We could be. But for that to happen, I see some things from this text that we desperately need in our own lives. And how about you in your own life? How are you doing? Do you need a reboot? What we see in our text is that if Isaiah's experience could somehow or another be emulated in our lives. And now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that the same thing happens to us. That's a matter in God's hands anyway. Plus, this was a one-time event in history as God dealt with the prophet Isaiah. But if the principles that we see in this text could become realities in our lives, I think we would see change. What could happen in your life, in my life, if we were to have a fresh encounter with God? I mean, what could really happen? Think about that. How long has it been since God got your attention and shook you to your core? Have you ever had a life-changing encounter with God like that? That was Isaiah's experience in this text, and I want you to understand it defined and shaped the rest of his life. Imagine something happening in your life that defines and shapes the rest of your life. That's what Isaiah experienced. When Isaiah encountered God in a fresh way, it changed everything about his life and everything about his perspective. A.W. Tozer once said, The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. What I want us to see this morning is that an authentic encounter with God changes everything about your life. You know, we have today too much of what Dr. Mike, Michael Horton calls moral therapeutic deism. Jesus is just my little genie in a box and I'll take him out when I need something and then I'll put him back into his box and close the lid when I think everything's okay. And he said, 
Unfortunately, that's what we see a lot of today in Christianity in the West. It's really nothing more, more than moral uh, theistic deism. Folks, we got to have more than that. I would encourage you to take some notes this morning. The first thing I want you to see with me, we need to see the power and the sovereignty of God. We need to see the power and sovereignty of God. Look again at verses 1 to 4. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. The indication was the only thing that could fill the temple was just the train of his robe. God was too glorious for the temple to contain him. Indeed, all the universe can't contain him. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Now the text tells us that this happened, this vision that Isaiah had took place in the year that King Uzziah died. You can look back at 2 Chronicles 26 to see a little bit more about King Uzziah's reign. Under his reign for 52 years, the land had relative prosperity. And for the most part, Uzziah was a good king. But of course, we know near the end of his life or near the end of his reign, he did mess up. I guess he he got full of pride or something. And in the temple one day, he presumed that he could be a priest offering incense to the Lord. And the other priest told him not to do that. And he did it anyway, and he apparently had some words for them and, and, and was holding the incense. And the Bible says that God struck him with leprosy. And there were 80 priests in there, and they they got him out. Some of them, I would assume, got him out quickly, and he went and lived in separate quarters for the rest of his reign because he had to live in isolation from everybody, and his son Jotham became a co-regent along with him. But by and large, he was a good king, had a prosperous reign in the nation. I'm sure his death left a lot of people with uncertainty because after 52 years of being in charge, now he's dead. Now imagine how the nation felt. They had gone through king after king after king, some of them good, some of them bad. One, one was so bad, the, uh, one grandmother killed all of her grandsons but one so there would be no rivals to the throne and she would have killed that one except the high priest and his wife hid him away from her. I mean that's some of what they'd been through. And so for 52 years, they've had a relatively good national leader. But now he's gone. What now? 
Now, we're not told necessarily that Isaiah's vision took place before after his death. We assume afterwards, but that's not necessarily a given. It might have just been in the same year that he died. But God was giving Isaiah a unique vision. And that vision included the principles that earthly powers come and go. The earth can go through times of uncertainty and unrest, but nothing that happens here on, on the earth changes the fact that God is still on his throne. And he's the king of the universe. The Bible says in Psalm 90 that from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. From before the time that God created this earth in Genesis 1 until after the time that this earth is dissolved as we're told in 2 Peter 3. God will still be on his throne. God will always be on his throne. And nothing will ever change that fact. On the morning of Abraham Lincoln's death, a crowd of 50,000 people gathered before the exchange building in, in New York. Emotions were running high. James Garfield, who would later be president and assassinated also, stepped to the front of the balcony and cried out, Fellow citizens, clouds of darkness are round about him. His pavilion is dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the establishment of his throne. Mercy and truth go before his face. Fellow citizens, God reigns. Could you imagine a Washington politician saying that today? God is sovereign. And he's in control. You know, that's a lesson, a tough lesson Job had to learn in the book of Job, isn't it? God never did give Job some of the answers he was looking for, but he said to Job, were you around when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding of these things. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or lose the belt of Orion? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that, that they may go? And, and say to you here we are God's lesson to Job was Job I was there you weren't I'm God and you're not you know I take the sovereignty of God to be one of the most comforting doctrines in all of scripture I really do we can go through troubling times and uncertain times in life some of you are experiencing that today Maybe you or your mate has been diagnosed with something bad. Maybe you've gone through a job loss. Maybe your children or your grandchildren are rebelling. Maybe you're going through challenges financially or challenges in a certain relationship you have. For some of you, life seems to be in a state of flux. Everything seems to be changing and the boundaries are, are being pushed. I know these things because you've talked to me recently about some of these. You're experiencing trials, many of you. Tribulation. And wow, just, I mean, think of the trials and tribulation and uncertainties we've seen in the nation and the world over the past year or 16 months now. 
Like Isaiah, we need to have an encounter with the living God. And we need to understand he is still on his throne. You know, Paul says in Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul says there, not a few things work together, but all things The things you dread most about your life. The things you may understand the least about. The things that you might might like the least. Who knows? Those things may be the things that God is using the most in your life right now to conform you to the image of Christ. Paul says all things work together. There's a, there's a synergy. All things work together. We want to choose certain things where we want God to work. God work in this area, not in this area. No, he says all things work together. And then he says for good. You see, God has a divine plan. But Then he says for those who love God. Romans 8, 28 is not a promise for everybody. Everybody likes to claim it, but it's not a promise for everybody. It's a promise to those who are adopted sons and daughters of God, in God's family through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's who that promise is for. You can know as a child of God, if you're a child of God, reconcile to the King of Kings of the universe, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you are reconciled to Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and all of your sins are washed away and your name is written in the book of life, then you can know based on God's promise that all things God is working together in your life for ultimate good. You may not see it. I may not see it. But that doesn't mean that he's not doing it. Folks, we need to realize this world will always be uncertain. Every generation has had its own times of uncertainty. Remember what uh, Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes? There is nothing new under the sun. And Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation. Think about it, folks. A planet wrecked by the curse and the consequences of sin can never be our ultimate source of hope. Our hope is in God who never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, Isaiah needed a new perspective. And his people needed a new perspective. They needed repentance. And Isaiah needed the same. One and all, they needed to see the power and sovereignty and the righteousness and the holiness of God and what God is calling for. And it took the tragedy of of the death of a good king in their nation to realize this. What's it going to take for you? Will it take a tragedy? Will it take a trial? Could it be that God is already trying to show our nation something? Could he be trying to jolt us? 
into a new sense of reality? What did, what did Isaiah see? He saw the, the seraphim also crying out before the holiness of God. The, the seraphim are angelic creatures, burning ones. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Do you realize that the Bible never says loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty? Is God loving? Of course He is. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. But it never says love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. It never says merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord God Almighty. Is God merciful? Of course He's merciful. But holiness seems to be the attribute that most defines him. A.W. Tozer says God is holy with an absolute holiness that knows no degrees. His holiness is the grounds of our worship. And what did Isaiah feel? He felt the foundations shake. I guess it was kind of like an earthquake maybe. The threshold, the foundations of the threshold shaking. We don't know exactly what it was, but it, there was shaking going on that, that was being done here. And the house was filled, the temple was filled with smoke. And this whole scene was intended to convey to God's prophet that he was in the presence of the sovereign God of the universe. And, and the idea was that all of creation displays the glory of God, but even all of creation is not adequate to fully capture the glory of God. It's a reminder to us through all the ups and downs of life. There's one hymn that can be on our lips. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Second thing I want you to see, we need to truly see the sin of man. Verse 5, then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man. Now, if you were to go back to chapter 5, you would see Isaiah condemning people with a series of woes. Verse 8 of chapter 5, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, till there's no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they might follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So up until now, Isaiah's woes have been on everybody else. But I want you to notice here, when he gets a fresh glimpse of God and God's holiness, it changes from everybody else woes to now Isaiah is saying what? Woe is me. I'm done for. 
You see, it was when Isaiah saw God that he saw himself. He saw himself in a new light up against the holiness of God. And all he could do is cry out, woe is me. He thought he was going to die. You will never see yourself for, for what you really are until you see God for who he really is. You know, people all the time think they're, they're pretty good because they're comparing themselves to other men. But you know what? You put yourself up next to Jesus Christ and what, what are all of us going to have to cry out? Woe is me. There's actually three people sitting in your seat today. There's the person you hope you are. There's the person others think you are. And there's the person that God knows that you are. I heard of a king that was on board an ancient vessel. It was one of those ancient vessels that was being rowed by slaves. And he went below to visit the galley where men were shackled to oars. You know, that, that could be punishment back then, shackling men as slaves to oars, rowing ships across the seas. He asked one of them, why are you here? The man said, sir, I was falsely accused. He went to the next one, why are you here? Sir, I was just in an area where people were committing crimes and I got caught up in the blame that was due to everybody else. On and on this went. Everybody had an excuse for why they were there unjustly. Finally, he got to one of those galley slaves rowing and he said, why are you here? And that man hung his head and said, sir, I'm here because I've sinned. I've committed sins against God and against humanity. I'm here because I deserve to be here. And that king said, hurry, set him free before the other men corrupt him. <laughs> Isaiah cried out, woe is me, I am undone. He literally thought he was going to die. Don't you get tired of hearing some of these songs, some of these testimonies of people saying what they would do if, if they saw God? I remember a book written one time by Dr. John MacArthur about some of the chaos that can go on in some charismatic circles. And he told the story of a man who said he was sitting in his den one evening watching reruns of I Love Lucy. And this man said, God showed up in the room and sat down with me and we started talking together and chatting and watching reruns of I Love Lucy together and me and God were laughing together and then all of a sudden he just got up and left. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Such craziness that people can have in their attitudes. People say, man, if God would only show up but I want you to remember something. Remember the Old Testament. The people of God were crying out for the day of the Lord to hurry up and come. 
And God told his people that when the day of the Lord arrived, it wasn't going to be a good thing for most people. They didn't realize what they were asking for. God spoke of it as a time of judgment, a time of purifying, a type of cleansing, where most people would not even be able to stand. Here was Isaiah, the prince of the prophets. He writes more about the coming Messiah than any other prophet. No, no one among the prophets mentions about the coming Messiah any more than him. And yet when God showed up, this prince of the prophets exclaimed, Woe is me, for I am undone. He thought he was surely going to die right there and then on the spot. John Calvin wrote, if you don't know who God is, you can't really understand who you are. Because Isaiah had seen God, he saw himself more clearly. I take this passage to mean that even the great prophet Isaiah was an unredeemed, unregenerate, unregenerate man on the way to an eternity without God until these events here in this chapter transpire. By the way, that's a common, that's, that's not a rare opinion. You know, some people wonder, the endless discussions among scholars, why does, why does this episode, which appears to be as conversion and calling, why doesn't that happen at the front of the book? In a lot of discussion today, some just conclude the first five chapters sort of set the tone for what he's going to end up saying in his ministry. And then there's a little bit of pause to talk about his conversion and calling. If that's true though, here's a man who was a priest. He was a man who served in the temple of God. Probably was faithful. Here was a man who everybody else would have wanted to, uh, to be in his shoes if they had to stand before God. And yet until this, apparently he was a lost man. A good man, a religious man, but just as lost as, as some kind of tribesman in some distant part of the world out bowing down to rocks and trees as false gods. But Isaiah was a man in whom God was working. God had him in that place at that time and God was doing a work in Isaiah that Isaiah could not have even comprehended. God allowed Isaiah to see his holiness and when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he instantly became a broken man. He saw himself for exactly who and what he was. He was a lost man. And he needed God to do in his life what only God could accomplish. He saw himself as somebody who was utterly undone and had nothing on his own to offer to God. Here was a priest serving in the temple whose lips would offer blessings and praises to God and intercessions to God. And yet when he saw God, he, he saw that his lips were unclean. Though he lived among the people whom God had raised up and called to be his very own possession, he saw that he lived among a, an unclean people with unclean lips. In other words, who they were in the flesh in and of itself meant nothing to God. Isaiah saw that day in a smoked-filled temple 
more clearly than he had ever seen before in the brightness of a noonday sun on a clear day. Have you ever come to that realization? You see, that's the point at which God can do a work in us. You might be good compared to others, but others are not the issue, as I said earlier. Up next to God, if you're outside of Christ, up next to God, you're not good. You're blind and naked. Paul emphasizes this in the book of Romans. There is none who is good. No, not one. He emphasizes it. There is none who is good. None who seeks after God. Have you come to that realization? If you're outside of Christ, you're not good. Good in the sense of being able to get your way into heaven. Oh, you might be a fine person. You might be a straight-A student. You might be a member of the honor club. You might, you might be the head in your office, and everybody looks to you as an example. You might be a deacon in a church. I've even heard of preachers. You know, they think, hey, I'm good. Yet, they were outside Christ. Outside of Christ, we're not good. We're not righteous. In fact, Isaiah will go on to say in the same book, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before holy God. Have you ever come to a point like this in your life? You can substitute outward ritual and religion all you want, but it'll never work. Have you ever been broken before God and understood your condition without Christ? You know, it's backwards thinking to us, but think about it. The way up is not up. The way up is what? First of all, down. Being broken. And then when you get down, God cleanses you and regenerates you, changes you from the inside out, and then he stands you back up, amen, and gives you a future and a hope. Folks, this is so woven into the framework of God's word, I don't know how we missed it. Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees who thought they were righteous, Paul says in the book of Romans, they've, they've substituted in their own righteousness in place of God's righteousness. And Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, he said, the tax collectors and publicans and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Because you see, it was that latter group that knew they didn't deserve it. They were broken. Just like the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee beat on, I mean, the Pharisee looked up to God. God, I thank you that I'm not like that rascal over there. I do this, 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 this. Aren't you proud of me? And Jesus said, but the publican looked down, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Just beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the man who went home clean. 
If you wanted to come in here today and simply have somebody tell you how good you are and how good you need to feel about yourself and how great life is and God simply wants to add to, to what you already are, you know, add some sprinkles to the top of your ice cream and help you discover all of your potential, then you came to the wrong place. Isaiah's journey with God began by seeing the majesty of God and his own misery and need up next to that. Notice what happened next. Isaiah's vision of himself didn't stop with him being down in the dirt, so to speak. God himself accomplished Isaiah's cleansing and redemption. And God cleansed his lips. Why the lips? Why not the heart? Well, Isaiah mentioned his unclean lips. Plus, Isaiah was a spokesman for God. But remember also Jesus said what comes out of the mouth or the lips comes also from reveals what's in the heart. So I guess in a sense to have your lips clean is referenced also having your heart clean. And I want you to notice that the coal came from off the altar. Don't you know that burned? It's a symbol. That atonement always involves suffering and pain. I want you to remember in the Old Testament, those animal sacrifices, something had to die for sin. And then as Jesus died on the cross, he suffered and was in agony. Then there's the image here of burning, purification. When God atoned for our sin through Jesus Christ, it was painful but also purifying. In other words, salvation leaves you different. You're different after conversion than before. Isaiah was made clean when he came clean with God. God declared your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Now folks, how about that for a good news declaration? That's good news, isn't it? I'm here to tell you today, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If you come to Jesus in your need, in your spiritual bankruptcy, God declares you to be forgiven and free. God doesn't take a man down to the muck and mire and leave him there, but God converts him, regenerates him, and lifts him out of that and makes a new person out of him. The same verse that says the wages of sin is death also says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And those who come to God by way of Jesus can stand on Romans 8.31. Who shall lay a charge against God's elect? You know, there's a lot of people out there that would like to charge you and condemn you. But Paul goes on to say, it is Christ who justifies. And what he's saying is that the only one, that is Jesus, who could truly condemn you is the one instead who has died to justify you. Now folks, that's freedom, that's forgiveness.
want to ask you. Have you ever experienced anything along these lines? Where God essentially gets you to the end of your set. I know it's different dramatics for different people. I understand that. For Isaiah, for the Apostle Paul, dramatic experiences for Lydia in the book of Acts. As she heard the word, the Lord opened her heart to believe and she was changed. But one way or another, has this ever happened to you? God broke you. God got you to the end of yourself. And, and, and you confessed him. There's nothing in you righteous, nothing deserving. But by Jesus, woe is me, I'm undone. Only through him am I justified. And then God saves you, cleanses you, changes you, redeems you, reconciles you to himself. Makes you a new person from the inside out. Religion can never do that on its own. For Isaiah, being a priest didn't do that on its own. The third thing I want you to see, we need to respond with an unreserved availability for service. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Yes, go. And say to this people, Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. After Isaiah's experience here, what did God say? Who will go for us? And you know what? That question right there shows the the heart of God and the burning desire of God. God is after man's redemption. Man might have sinned against God, but God is the divine pursuer. He's going after the straying sinner. You know, people can think that God is harsh, but Jesus said, I'll give you a glimpse of what God is like. Here's a man who has a hundred sheep. At the end of the day, 99 of them are gathered into the fold. What would we say? Hey, that's pretty good statistics. I'll go to bed tonight knowing that I got 99 out of 100. I only lost one today. But what Jesus say? God is like the, the man who would leave those 99 in the care of others and go after that one and look for that one till he found it and then put it on his shoulders and coming back rejoicing. What did Isaiah say to God's desire, who will go for us? Isaiah said, here am I, send me. I love what Dave Seeger used to say. Dave Seeger is talking about too many people in the church across the land today. Here I am, Lord, send him. Here I am, send her. Here I am, Lord. I want your blessings. I want your good stuff. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. But boy, when it comes to what you want, God, send him, send her, send somebody else. Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. You take a man or a woman who God gets a hold of and saves, and God turns that person all the way around. What's that man want to do now? Whatever God wants him to do. 
You don't have to beg him to come to church, arm wrestle him to come to church and serve. You don't have to arm wrestle him to love God and be about God's business. He wants to do that because he's a man with a new heart. God's changed him and God's redeemed him. It's in his nature now. He looks to God. You take people who just want to fight with God, ignore God, disobey God, go their own way in life, do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, however they want to do it. It honestly makes you wonder if they've ever experienced anything the way what Isaiah experienced here. A lot of other people say, well, Lord... I'll go, but it depends on what you want me to do. You tell me what you want me to do, and then I'll assess it and determine if I want to do it or not. I want you to notice what Isaiah did here. He said, here am I, send me. He signed on the dotted line before the contract was so to speak, was even written out. God, whatever, here am I, send me. I'll do it, I'll go. And then notice from verses 9 to 11 that the task wasn't going to be an easy one. Isaiah's proclamation, his sending and his proclamation would only harden some people more. You know, the preaching of God's word has that effect. It will harden some people. Jesus even talked about that on one occasion. Some people will be softened and broken and changed. And some people will be hardened. And that's what God said was going to happen in Isaiah's day too. And through his preaching ministry. But God promised that he would save a remnant. God always saves for himself a remnant. And out of that remnant, we know that according to the flesh, the Messiah came. Folks, we can know that as we engage the culture with the gospel, everyone will not listen. In fact, we, we might even could say most in the culture will not listen. And to the degree that the world gets in the church, we could even say some in the church on church pews won't listen. They'll be hardened. Paul talks about that in Romans 1 also, doesn't he? When people suppress the truth of God, what happens? A gradual hardening takes place. But the promise is some will listen. And for them, Isaiah would have a tremendous impact. But it wouldn't be easy. Isaiah went. He ended up doing exactly what God told him to do to carry out this, this commission. And you know what happened to Isaiah? Tradition says that King Manasseh had him sawn in too. Could you imagine that? We love these action movies, don't we? Here's the, the hero, you know, he gets captured and put on the conveyor belt and this, this big saw spinning. I mean, no tell how many, 10,000 RPM, big saw. And he's going down the conveyor belt and he's tied. And right at the last minute, something happens and the hero is saved. 
Well, back then, it wouldn't be a motorized saw, of course. Probably two men standing on saw. saw. Manasseh had king uh, had prophet Isaiah laid down and sawn into. But Isaiah was faithful. I just want to ask you a simple question this morning. Have you, in a sense, seen God in His holiness and glory? To where you became broken and repentant? And what difference has it made in your life? Father, we thank you for this great chapter. It's one of those watershed passages in the Old Testament. God, it tells us so much. Reveals so much about you and your glory. So much about us and our sinfulness. And our need of redemption. Lord, as I prayed at the beginning, this is your word. And we stand on that promise that your word shall not return unto you void. Lord, there's not a doubt in my mind that in an assembly this big, there are people here today, perhaps, who like Isaiah as a priest in the temple. They're religious. They might even hold a position. But that's all they are, outward religion. They've never inwardly been redeemed and regenerated and born from above by the power of your Spirit. God, I just pray that you would remove the veil from their eyes and help them to see the glory of God in Christ today and that they would come to Christ. That they would cry out to you, whether now or this afternoon or tonight by their bedside, that they would cry out for your redemption. God, that you would gloriously save them. Lord, for those who have been redeemed, Remind them. Your call, your commission is upon their lives. And it may not be easy, but you've called us to be faithful. May we be found faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?